0: History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I'm your still sickly sounding host Jackson and in today's episode we're talking to Aaron Daniels who is a historian all about his work redefining analytic human horse interactions in central Eurasia. This was a really fascinating conversation with Aaron as we discussed various different ways of taming and domesticating horses, co-domestication between horses and humans, but also the importance of archaeology within these studies. I know you're really gonna love listening to Aaron talk about these these different topics and exploring them with him because it's something that it's a very different topic, but it's nonetheless an important one to learn about. Now if you enjoy the topics and conversations that we have here at History Jackson, please do consider heading to History Jackson Plus on our podcasts or the Buy Me a Coffee profile in the description below to continue to support us. Now, without further ado, I'll leave you with Aaron. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we're talking to historian Aaron Daniels about his article, Redefining Enolithic Human-Horse Interactions in Central Eurasia. How are you doing, Aaron?
1: I'm great, thanks. I am great.
0: Uh, nice to be on the show. Thanks for having no, me. No, it's, it's great to have you on. I'm really excited to talk about something which I think is often Uh, not even often ignored hardly known and I think it's an important topic for us to discuss today.
1: Yeah you're quite right I mean even for me like when I was looking into this there's things that I was like well it's it's always really enriching I think when you start looking at different cultures around the world and their their own relationship to an animal maybe we take for granted Um, or think that there's only maybe a few modes of interaction with
0: no, I, I certainly agree in terms of, of horses. I think a lot of people do take them for granted. But I want to I dive down there a little bit. You know, What was the inspiration for you wanting to to write this piece? Because obviously it's, it's a very specific study, but an incredibly interesting one.
1: I think it, it was sort of like a niggling thing in the back of my mind for a while. And I suppose it was sort of in feasibility of what sort of research could I find? How could I find it? Um, you know, was there enough documented evidence of the things I already knew a little bit about? Um, and it just took a while to sort of sort of galvanize all those different research strands. But I think the things that were really, um, sort of encouraging me, motivating me to do it was, I suppose my personal link is my granddad. So he used to train horses. Um, <laughs> uh, he was a good old Irishman, uh, and he, uh, looked after a bunch of horses in the stables for... Some lord and lady in the West Country, and I cannot remember their name. Um, but yeah, so he was he was in the stables every day um, till the day he died, really. Uh, and he was always a stickler for for not being so, so strict with them. This sort of domineering, um, almost sort of like you know, terrifying them into submission, kind of uh, techniques, which I think used to be more popular, but isn't as much today. Uh, but yeah, he was very much about just being on the same level as the animal, uh, trying to sort of afford it a bit more agency. Um, so, yeah, he he was he was against the whole sort of punishment and discipline approach, um, which I think at the time uh, was quite popular. Certainly if you're training horses for the races and, you know, such things. Um, and then the other I think the other thing that was probably it's it comes from sort of a more general um theme which is i'm just really interested in how humans have their sort of relationship with nature has evolved throughout the millennia you know how it's changed in different parts of the world with different groups um how you know you have individual approaches you have sort of group dynamics um and also how we got where we are today (laughs) and what we're doing with nature today Um, which I think is probably enough to say the moment uh, isn't so great. So I suppose for me, I I was just wanting to look at different alternatives, different ways that are maybe, you know, maybe a bit more respectful um, or a little bit more uh, appreciative of what we have around us. Um, Yeah, so I think those are two main things that are really sort of fueling me. But also, I think the idea of domestication is something that just bugged me for a bit. Because it's always seen as something that's quite a one-sided, top-down, what we do to the thing, quite a mechanical sort of approach, you know, uh, press a button, you get a response, you know, you sort of add these ingredients, you get the formula, ta-da, it's a domesticated animal, (laughs) you know, as if you're making a car. And I don't feel personally, certainly not with my interactions with animals throughout my life, that that's how it works there's always been a, a, a give and take there's always been an agency in both parties there's been a sort of fluid dynamic even if it's just you know interacting with the um you know with the with the friend's pet cat um you know i mean they've all got their own personalities but um even that personality is something that i think can also factor in certain animals interactions as well um so i suppose i just wanted to see if if it actually holds up to scrutiny and certainly in, in terms of horses where the evidence is sort of multi-vocal it is isn't absolute uh there's a lot of indirect evidence for certain things um and there's a lot of theories and they seem to be changing you know uh, as much as the wind changes or the weather certainly in england um so yeah i think that's kind of a, a long-winded version
0: i think it's really nice how you came into it you know as as we see with a lot of historians it's A family member gets you interested in one thing, and then your general interest in in wanting to explore something even further takes you to want to explore that to a different level. I think it's really nice that you're able to mesh those. But I do, I do certainly agree that you know my I've got two dogs here and a a cat. Mm. Their three personalities are incredibly different, Uh, and even though they're domesticated, you know, you, you the way that you interact with each of those animals is is very different and it's incre- it's incredibly interesting to think about how different people across the millennia have interacted with their with their animals but i want to ask you know why do we think why do you think it's important for us to study the the history and the role of horses in in society uh, i know we've touched on it a little bit but you know at the moment in society horses don't have such a big role anymore compared to what they've had for the past millennia
1: Well, I think that brings on to the sort of the things that already we always talk about in terms of horses, you know, warfare or transportation. You know, those are the things that they were integral to up until, well, I mean, in some countries they still are. I mean, maybe not warfare, but certainly transportation. Um, And, you know, in in, certainly in in our, our neck of the woods, probably up until what even 50, 60 years ago in some parts of this country, still powering industry um but i think it's because it's such a sensitive animal you know um it's not a predatory animal that's another interesting thing right like there's there's quite a lot of domesticated animals which can be sort of of the predatory type that we interact with in a social way that we include within our group then there's domesticated animals which are the prey type which we may want to put into a box put into a cage milk it get eggs from it you know slice it up and do a kind of thing with it and take what we want. And I think that those sorts of distinctions can be a little blurred when you look at horses because well, some suggestions are that they were initially domesticated primarily for um, you know, secondary use, not primary use. I mean, okay, yes, yeah, some, some believe that it was because of, wanted to have like a, a, a firm, stable source of meat, um, but I think there's a lot more theories that suggest oh it's, it's primarily for transportation. It's because of their use uh, and functionality. It's because of them producing milk. It's producing things like that. Uh, it's something that could be ridden. Um, I mean, that's something we can talk about later. How the hell do you get the uh, the idea of jumping on the back of this thing? <laughs> um, whoever the first person was to do that, um, that would have been a fun thing to to watch. Um, but uh, I think it's it's like a I see it as a barometer for, you know, maybe this is sort of a bit sort of blasé, but like as a barometer for society, how this animal has been utilised over the last three, four, 5,000 years can sometimes reflect where we're at as human beings and what we are trying to do in the world. Um, And yeah, a lot of historical narratives tend to say, ah, it was the horse that, you know, powered this, it was the horse that did that, you know. But it was—it's more like our use of the horse that did that. Um, and there's this kind of myth as well that you know anyone who sits on a horse with a sword is in, invincible, right? You can't—you can't knock them out. You can't take them out. That's it, you know, as if it's like some sort of primitive form of a tank, unstoppable. And you know, there, there's a lot of issues of that as well. I think, but um, these kinds of things that I think we're taking for granted historically, archaeologically, uh, socially as well, and yeah, because they're not um integral to the sort of practicalities of life but they are integral to uh what well, entertainment you know your horse racing brings in billions of well, pounds or dollars depending where you are uh every year um and they're still they're, they're seen as a prestige animal right they're seen they're, they're they're put on this this sort of status that's different to other animals um And it's something that's quite a unique sort of evolution of an animal throughout the ages and to how it's gotten to where it is today. But then there's other things that sort of have come up for me as well, which is, you know, looking into the the genetics of things, looking into uh, breeding practices. um, There's a lot of issues with the way that we breed animals today um, in terms of that diversity genetically, you know, and certainly when horses, uh, you know, these are kind of like closed gene pools, these are these are animals that we're trying to get the best sporting animal out of. But in the process of doing that, um we're kind of like limiting its ability to, you know, to change, to adapt, all sorts of things. So you get, you know, um genes that are popping up that aren't particularly healthy. You get um generations of horses that develop illnesses and diseases, and um and this is all for our our desire to, to fulfill what we want. Uh, that makes us feel, I don't know, whatever, good or, or something like that, you know, getting our, our, our racing going, uh, gambling, stuff like that. Uh, I mean, of course, there's other places in the world where that's not the case. But um I suppose I'm mainly talking about the Western world here. um So those are other issues that I think have come up for me, which is just animal welfare as a whole. Um, as I said, it's changing. It's far more sort of um, uh, self-reflexive today than it used to be maybe... 20, 10 years ago even I suppose um, but those things are I think are really really problematic um, if we don't address them because it's something to take for granted something that then is put on to, into another animal you know I mean let's just look at the use of uh, of dairy animals how we how we um you know look after our chickens in the various parts of the country uh, parts of the world um, they're all kind of the way that we perceive the animal how how useful it is to us you know and i think it's that idea of utility that's something i really want to question is that the only way uh, and is that the healthiest way for us as well no so, it's 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 interesting
0: yeah. to hear you know that that servant master kind of uh, role within those relationships across multiple animals particularly uh, in the development of the role of the horse now, your paper mainly focuses on central eurasia and you know when you were talking about reasons for domestication of the horses, you know were those reasons the same reasons uh, for for people in Central Eurasia?
1: Well, that's a very, very, very good question because that brings us on to as well. I, uh, the way I see looking at the past is that sometimes we have to be very self-aware of where we're at in the present, right? That self-reflexivity to know if we're putting some bias on the past, but also why why we want to know why is it that we want to dig up that dead person's grave you know someone buried their dad like that you know this is someone something that's very important to somebody i mean even with these horses these things were buried in some of these parts of the world um why is it that we want to find out this information is it to relate or is it to compare or is it genuinely for the sort of like increasing of our knowledge uh there's always an agenda. It doesn't always have to be negative, but there's always a reason why, you know, certainly like my reason for wanting to look at this. And I think once we look at that, we can quite clearly see our reasons for wanting to ride horses today. And then looking at what could be in the past, I think it's a could be. Um, And I think that that's probably more important than saying, giving a definitive, because that's the sort of flexibility of the range of interactions possible. You know, we live in a very you know, a world crowded with ideas, you crowded with people, crowded with stuff. And so it means that those avenues of interaction can sometimes be a bit limited or they can be very highly managed or they're facilitated in certain modes. But perhaps in a world where that that facilitation is much more ideological, I think that that's probably the the motivating reason. And I don't personally think it's with the intention of control. You know, um, this is where we get into those co-domestic spheres. We get into those ideas of of the animal being part of the the sort of the, the greater household, embedded in the landscape. You know, the humans' dwellings embedded in the landscape, and these animals are also part of that greater home. Um, so, again, it's I suppose it's unpacking. Did someone actually think one day, wake up in the morning, and go, "Oh, you know what? I'm going to jump at that animal." This so is gonna be a great idea, you know. <laughs> Hopefully I won't die, but people are gonna think I'm cool. You know, imagine all the fist bumps I'll get. Uh all the likes. Oh wait, likes didn't exist back then, or did they? Um but I think when you start looking at it that way, you see that actually is that really does that hold up to scrutiny? A lot of these animals, when you're looking in various uh cultures throughout time, and if you're looking at uh in North America, looking at the Blackfoot nations, um Primarily, they take on a spiritual purpose. Yes, even the dog before the introduction of the horse, or should I say reintroduction of the horse, um, you know, had a practical use, but it was still a revered animal. But then when the horse comes in, very quickly, you know, within a decade or two, it's suddenly taken on all of these roles in society. So I kind of wonder if veneration is probably a really important aspect of this, not just what can we extract from it. And that extractive... <clears throat> approach to things, I think, is something that's developed over our current few hundred years of development in society. Um, and the efficiency, the, the mechanization, the productivity, the things that we can get from nature to improve our world. But if you perceived nature or the natural world as perfect already in itself, are you going out there to improve it? Is domestication about improving the animal? I mean, these are some of the thoughts coming up in the you know enlightenment thinking uh, in the 1800s you know go out and find an animal see if it's useful for society take it back let's give it a go if not that's it you know someone can cook it on a barbecue or whatever um, but these days you know I don't I don't think we 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 need to look back at that because our priorities are different right we don't think that that's important But that then we're abusing animals today right So it's still under there. It's still underlying the very foundations of our society is that relationship with it. The idea of the human being separate from the natural world and then coming into it to perfect it. So
0: so I think you make a really uh, important point there, actually. Uh, is that you you need to have that reflexivity about history. I think a lot of us take take for granted, and I think a lot of us think as well, that a lot of facts in history are, are definitive and that we all come away with an idea that you know this is what happened this is why it happened bish bash bosh that's it but there's a lot of different factors and, and a lot of different potential answers like you you're bringing about with the the reason for domestication of horses across different places is that there's different reasons and we can't be sure of those reasons because we weren't there for all of these interactions but you know talking about domestication and and we are looking at you know we've you're making a great point about putting today's values onto the values of the past, but you know you're we, also talking about some of the issues that someone might have you know what issues did these people have with attempting to tame train and domesticate horses because you know whilst not a lot of people have gotten very close to a horse we can we can respect the the size and the power of these these beings because a lot of them are two three times taller than an average person and 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 a good deal heavier so what issues did they have
1: (laughs) i can speak from personal experience actually um a couple of years ago so um i can't remember where i was at but there was a bunch of wild ponies um and they were sort of roaming around i was going for a hike um and um i don't know why i just thought hmm I've done a little bit of reading around things. Okay, yeah, granddad said these things before. You know, I mean, he passed away before I was born, but you know, he said these things to mum about how you do things, whatever. So I thought, okay, let's 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 try and make some friends here. Uh, <laughs> so I I tried to in, insert myself in the herd, right, become one with the herd. Um, and I think it was over over a couple of days. So I sort of brought things. I brought like you know bits of fruit, apple, carrot, whatever. Um, and I sort of just tried observing the different animals in the in the herd. I, I thought, okay, some of these horses are a bit young, some of them are a bit older. I can see that's possibly the lead mare. Um, and I think that this was this was there was only some sort of young um, young males in it, so um, that was kind of like that was a reassuring thing because obviously if you have a stallion in the herd, it can be a bit um, problematic in a wild one. <laughs> Uh and then after after some time I sort of started to see some of them were a bit more calmer than others. So I I tried getting a bit closer to them, you know, stroking them on the nose, letting them smell me, uh, letting them have the agency as well to come to me. So it was a bit boring sometimes just sort of sitting there watching. Um and anyway, to cut a long story short, after some time, I eventually sort of uh decided upon this this one horse and I thought, aha, okay, this is the one, here we go. All right, matey, um, <laughs> let's see what happens. Um, so, you know, um, again, trying to get close to it, you know, trying to get around the side of the animal. And again, it's about sort of reassuring the horse that it's you're not a threat um, and, and sort of trying to mimic those herd behaviors as well. But anyway, so I, I sort of, you know, leant up against it, getting it used to my touch and everything. After some time, I I managed to actually put my entire body weight over it and sort of was just sort of resting over it like that. Um, And then it was sort of just a bit placid. It was like, okay, that's cool. All right, got off, tried a few more times. Uh, And then the next day, I thought, okay, let's be a bit more daring. Um, So then did the sort of same process again. Uh, And then I got to that stage of putting my body weight, and I thought, okay, let's get a leg over. I'm probably sure as many people listening to this thinking i an idiot, but anyway, so I got a leg over, uh, in that way, but, um, so I'm on this horse, uh, and again, just sort of trying to very gently move my body weight onto it. So not like a point, you know, just plonking yourself. So I'm on this horse, um, and it sort of just stopped breathing and it's like, mm. and I could feel the tension in its muscles underneath me and I'm like, ah, Okay right this might not end well um so then after i think it was probably about good 20 30 seconds you know i was just sort of very gently on it just sort of just you know gently stroking the side of it and then suddenly it just kicked out from underneath me um i was quite I, i wish someone had seen it because i literally got knocked off i don't know if you've done martial arts but i ended up landing in horse stance on my legs like this oh wow that was that was quite quite scary um, literally got bucked off the end. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'll persist. So then the next day I tried again. Uh, and then this time I really got, it was like a bucking kind of, you know, sort of like cowboy kind of thing. I really got thrown off. And I think it was probably about by by round three and I was already having to sort of leave where I was staying. Uh, and then I, I discovered that, it, okay, this is going to take a long time. Anyway, the long story short is... Um, that's my personal experience from horses today that aren't necessarily uh, wild. Wild, um, you know, he's probably sort of off offshoots from a domestic breed from some time ago. Um, but in terms of approaching a horse, I mean, there's a very very good book, Monty Roberts, uh, the man who listens to horses. Um, I mean, there's there's probably things in there which you do have to, you know, he's very much about intuition, right? He's very much about being. In the, in the mind and the body and being present within yourself and and having that sort of calm assertive energy um and it's probably not what every academic would um would go on about you know uh it's it's maybe a bit more left field as they would say um but it's I, it's certainly stuff that works i mean he's managed to do it with with deer you know and deer is a far more skittish animal than horse um and his process was again slowly getting used to the herd observing them and it was at night that he managed to to notice that a lot of the herd interactions actually occurred as opposed to the day, that's when you'd see the lead mare, you know, dishing out discipline to the younger ones when they weren't behaving, uh, that it's the lead mare holding most of that discipline. Um, And it's the the stallion that then does more of the protective activities during the day or even the night when there's sort of predators attacking. But it's the mare that keeps that social cohesion. So that's where he managed to learn about the sociality of the horses. Uh, And these are wild Mustangs uh, in North America. Now, going back, okay, long story, uh, winding all the way back round. So, if we're talking about the horses that are supposedly domesticated in Bortai, in northern Kazakhstan, um, not long ago, uh, a genetic study uh, came out, uh, now suggesting that these horses are not uh, related to modern domesticates. These horses are closely related to the Przewalski horse. Uh, which is supposedly the last remaining wild horse, truly wild horse of the world. Uh, and that threw up a whole load of questions, right? So if this horse um, that they were riding um, is an ancestor of this modern Przewalski horse, then it means that this horse isn't truly what biologically you would define as a truly wild specimen. It's been domesticated at some point. But then that's on the premise that the horse was domesticated in the first place. So if the horse wasn't domesticated, but then people supposedly are riding them, what do you have? You know, if you have evidence for riding, but not domestication, what do you call it, right? Um, you know, that's the new term we need to figure out. Um, but these are all the kinds of theories sort of uh, floating around. This horse is, you know, the Przewalski horse is is renowned for being a stubborn horse. You cannot tame it. You cannot... You know, it's it's a tricky one. You know, even in captivity, this is uh, some time ago, um, they they just weren't even breeding. You know, there's certain different motions that have to be done in order for these uh, these types of horses to actually breed. And they just weren't breeding in captivity, so they have to be released. Um, it's just their, their sociality, the way that they interact with each other and the, the very sort of, um, you know, the processes and stages of that sociality leading up to mating, leading up to whatever it is, are so important to horses. that if you interrupt that cycle, you can get things that are called stereotypic behavior, you know, um, maybe biting, maybe sort of like things that aren't aren't necessarily helpful if the animal is in your social remit, if you're riding it and and taming it or whatever. Um, So if these people were able to try, uh, in the Western sense, domesticate a Przewalski horse or something similar to it, how could they do it without modern tackle without all the different you know fittings and fixtures without a, a fixed pen yet yeah, okay there's post holes that are found in some of these sites in Botai uh, and some have suggested that there's um you know possible remains of um, organic remains maybe resembling dung or something like that perhaps these are corrals where they were trained or 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 contained in but you know a post hole can also just be a post hole could be anything so when you come back to how were these horses uh, domesticated, I think you've got to ask how might they have been tamed. Um and that's where you come into natural horsemanship techniques. So things like what Monty Roberts has been experimenting with for, for decades, uh what Pat Pirelli had been experimenting with uh for decades as well. These these methods of utilizing natural horse behavior, um, maybe using a few things, um, maybe a rope, maybe a a few little gizmos but in an open in the open air. Yeah, you might have a corral as well. Monty Roberts has managed to do it outside of a corral as well. Um it takes time, but not as long as you think. Um I I think maybe within like 3 or 4 hours some of these horses uh, that supposedly wild or untamed have been tamed by Perelli and, and and Roberts. Um even Roberts has uh has managed to tame a wild mustang, you know, in I think that was like 3 days, 4 days as well. So it's actually far shorter than your conventional methods that we use today, where it may take weeks to break in the animal. Um, so what kinds of things are these these people employing? What kinds of techniques, if they are indeed riding them? But the confirmation, the physical confirmation of a Przewalski horse is, it's, it's not sort of uh, congenial to being ridden on. You know, the shoulders, the placement of the shoulders, the placement of the spine, the whole like, you know, physicality of the animal it's a tricky thing that doesn't exactly resemble modern horses. So if you were to sit on its back, firstly, it wouldn't be very comfortable for the rider. Secondly, it wouldn't be very comfortable for the horse. And after some time, you would end up with some sorts of injuries, either you know, to the rider or the horse, whether it's the vertebral damage, um, which some have suggested might be a, a great way of, of discovering if a horse has been ridden. Um, but it certainly wouldn't be in the same placement as a, as a, as a modern horse. Uh, not only that, you know, it's more the soft tissue damage. You know, it's the seat bones from your butt as they're going bouncing or rubbing on the back of the horse that will start doing damage to those um, uh, dorsal muscles and the spine muscles and all of those areas among, along the shoulders. So it becomes a tricky animal once you start looking at it um, to actually domesticate in a conventional sense. So it, you kind of get left with this idea that the best way to tame Um, or to sort of socialize with one of these Przewalski-type horses is to use these natural horsemanship techniques. But you have to be very, very patient and with a very intricate knowledge of horse behavior of these herds in order to actually do anything with them in the the Western sense. But I think the thing you've got to really pick apart is, you know, domesticating an animal today is very different to what might have been back then. And if there's no evidence for, you know, bridles, saddles and all of that kind of stuff, then you're literally talking bare basics, um, if that. Um, and that just brings up more questions. And I think that's where you then have to look at the culture. And that brings us all the way back to the archaeology. And I think for me, the point of archaeology, which is like just wanting to get into the heads of people in the past, the whys, you know, the, the scary, squidgy questions that don't have the hard data necessarily. They don't have a dearth of hard, hard data either, uh, but it's the it's the stuff that makes it meaningful. That's where you get to relate and how you get to understand. and sometimes looking at all of the different technological forms of domestication that utilize tools that utilize edifices and buildings can take us away, I think, from getting to the meaning of the why. and I think that's where when you look at some of these spiritual approaches. Which they are, there are spiritual approaches to, to animals. That's where you can start to understand the why, you know. And that's where you can see where they've been ritually buried, these horses, where you can see where they've been ritually treated, uh, different aspects of the body that might have been more important than others and have been put in, in ritual context with other human beings and such like. That's where you see that there is meaning behind it. So sometimes I wonder if looking for domestication is our modern hang that might not be what their initial intention was 5,000 years ago.
0: I think you made some really good, uh, really nice distinctions there for us, as well as historians, is you're making that distinction between traditional Western views on how we treat animals and, and, and what our relationship with animals is. And then that, that distinction between domestication and, and taming, because the two are very different. Uh, and it's it's a it's an important distinction to probably keep in mind throughout all of these, all of these interactions is if you put a Western traditional modern Western lens on these things that we're looking at, it can often skew how we view these relationships from the past and these interactions in the past. But you've, you've you gave me a great segue with the end of your answer there about archaeology, and and within your paper you you discuss archaeological and scientific findings quite quite a bit in and in great detail and you started to touch on it a little bit there. How helpful has archaeology and scientific findings been in helping us to explore the the interactions between humans and horses and and, and their lives together in, in central Eurasia?
1: I think that's that's a really good point to cover really, because without that I mean this is where it is that composite holistic approach without that hard stuff you know you don't have anything firm to jump off from right uh, but if you don't jump then you're never going to get to the other side sometimes you can't build a bridge sometimes you've got to take a leap i think of that scene in indiana jones right um where he's got to take the leap from the lion's head or whatever um in terms of the archaeology in central asia yeah there's quite a lot of uh of, of really interesting findings, Um, various sites that have uh, tons and tons of horse bones, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of horse bones. Um, You know, Bortai is one example, Um, you've got uh, Kvalinsk as well, that's an earlier cemetery, Um, and you see different uses of them, so you can see where they've been perhaps hunted, um, and where you see these large agglomerations of the bones, And then you see where they've been buried in particular burials with a certain individual. And you'll see the phalanges, you know, the the toe bits, uh, the toe bones, or you'll see uh, the horse skull. That's a very, very interesting thing because the horse skull is still something very important to uh, modern uh, Mongolian herders, certainly in the Arkhangai province. It's still revered as probably the most important aspect of the animal after it's died. and so, when you see those similarities there as well, again similarities, not the same. You can see that there is <laughs> there is a meaning there, uh, a spiritual meaning, and it's probably not the same meaning. Um, but you can certainly see that someone's gone to the effort of doing it. I mean, even in um, in Derivka, uh, so this is in in Ukraine. Um, there's there's you know suggestions again of ritual treatment, certainly of dogs. Uh, it's interesting as well, where sometimes you find dogs, you certainly can find horses. But yeah, those material findings um, are the things that really emphasize a ritual treatment. And I think it's that ritual treatment that can tend to get overlooked. The fact that it has been ritually treated is sometimes more important than the things you can't find, that you, you expect to find when you're looking for domestication. So sometimes I wonder if it, if we weren't to look for domestication, we might see a lot more Um, And when you then look at these other societies in North America, the Blackfoot, even if you look at northern uh, Siberia with these reindeer herders, you see um, that it's that kind of ritual treatment that actually takes precedence over all the practical stuff. Um, And if you're finding it in these sites, uh, I think it's probably, uh, you know, a, a disservice if you're just going to ignore that and put that aside um when it comes to genetics you know i think i mentioned uh, the study on the on the on the horses from bortai um there's a lot of evidence suggesting uh multiple ghost lineages now ghost lineages horses that we don't have physical or direct evidence of existing but through tracing you know genealogy back and i mean doing all the sort of complicated stuff that they do in jurassic park you know extracting things into things uh then you see that there's there's vast uh, herds and and um, different sort of offshoots of horses throughout uh, Eurasia, certainly in Siberia, um, that have existed but aren't present necessarily at these sites, but they're within the same time frame. Uh, so they're within maybe a couple hundred years of of some of these other horse bones in, in in northern Kazakhstan, or certainly within the thousand years of, of of those sort of interactions with horses. That kind of helps you to pinpoint. Um, that there's more possibilities right we're again we're looking at you know dom two horses they're referred to d o m two you know the modern domesticates we're looking for things that we can compare with that um but you know there's there's so many different types that have existed throughout history that it just it's just fascinating to think all the different types of interactions that could have happened um you know there's some suggestions that uh, the way reindeers were were first um Tamed, I'll say, rather than domesticated, uh, in northern Siberia is from the inspiration of seeing how horses were in in Mongolia, um, and even uh, in Mongolia, um, reindeer being tamed as well is is another thing that might have helped with some of those uh, those interactions um, in in Siberia. But again, you know, some of these developments are also unique to the region, and I think that's where getting a getting a finger on culture, getting a finger on on the pulse of, of the mindset of those people. I think that's where you get to understand how these sorts of things evolve separately. No, I, th- I
0: think you made a, a great point, actually. It, it stresses the need to to decentralise, move away the narrative from a traditional European Christian-centric uh, worldview of how certain processes and interactions have occurred. Because you know through your study looking at Central Eurasia, this is an area where communities and societies were traditionally nomadic, uh, and they were they were non-Christian. So decentralising that narrative creates an, an endless possibility of how these interactions might be uh, and and their uses in society. But Aaron, I have a, a final fun question for you, as we do for everyone on the podcast. You now, and I like I like to show historians is not just boring people who sit in our rooms and <laughs> in libraries and study and sit in cafes and write nothing all day. We actually have lives. Uh and you and you certainly have a very exciting one because you're an, uh, an actor and a voiceover artist as well as being a historian. How has being an actor and voiceover artist you know helped you in being a historian?
1: Well, this is this is a very fascinating question to answer because I think for me they're both integral they they, they they, feed each other. I think it's the imagination you gain from the creative industry that helps you to bring these things to life. Otherwise, you're just reading these things, right? A lot of the stuff we get is just written word, and God forbid it's all numbers and weird and squiggles and dots. Um, you know, those papers are the most interesting. But I think for me, it's, it's really helped me to appreciate how... Um, Use using both the sort of the creative and the intellectual side together, really helps you to sort of get context. Context. So when you're utilising the creative side with the intellectual side, you get to see the context, and the context is the thing that really binds everything together. Otherwise, it is just loose bits of data on a page. You know, it's like a, a building that's just a pile of bricks. When does a pile of bricks become a building? When you stick it together with meaning, right? Uh, and I think that's the context that. I think we're all looking for in 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 the past the things that then we can understand ourselves better with today the things we can relate to the things we can appreciate um then appreciate our own context and history today um and so you know the acting world sometimes i find when historical narratives are being portrayed they can be a little bit you know one dimensional or two dimensional they can sort of feed into one aspect of it but not the rest and if I mean, like for me, when I was a kid, I don't know for yourself, but you know, some of these things are the first things you watch, right? And they're the things that really interest you, you know, even if they're maybe not entirely accurate. Um, but they're they're visual, and I think we learn visually, you know, we're reading stuff all the time, right? But it's when we see things that are moving in a pictorial way. I think that can really go into us a lot deeper when we hear those things. When if we can, you know, tangibly touch it and smell it um these are the things that i think how stories were moved on and on throughout generations over thousands of years telling them around different situations in banquet halls over fires and you know different social circumstances but today it can sometimes be condensed to a book which is a great way of distilling the information but then you've got to make it alive again right you've got to make it relevant in, in some way and so for me i think I'm I'm really interested in seeing how the creative world can take that material accurately um, and give it all the due you know respect and and um, and stuff that it deserves, and turn that into a visual or sensory spectacle that encourages people to be more interested in the past. I think that's
0: a really nice and, and not, nice, nice, emotional way of bringing history to people, uh, and it's definitely something that's. I've found throughout some of the books that I've got is is lacking in the way that we we interact with history, and it's possibly somewhere where living historians are trying to bring that to the fray a little bit more. And it's great to to hear you wanting to and using two parts of your life to to bring history to life a little bit more, because you know as as someone who plays sport, it definitely informs the way that I I look and approach history as well. And it's it's always great to hear how historians are more than just historians as well
1: what kind of sport do you play uh
0: I was a rugby player so wow. yeah
1: and you you must have watched the the final then recently
0: yes yeah yes but I wasn't after South Africa beaters I wasn't I wasn't particularly fussed but that's I wanted New enough. Zealand to win
1: yeah <laughs> yeah so did I actually yeah. um yeah I, I think that's that you know it's, it's always interesting to see how you can you know mix those two things up as well to sort of give you know the physical side of things as well these are all aspects of the past you know people are living a physical life and I, I sometimes wonder that in the modern world we are encouraged to be in one aspect you know to be maybe either pigeonholed or to be driven to just be in one thing but that doesn't lead you to become a rounded person it doesn't also help you to to understand those people in the past. And, you know, that that physical aspect of things, I think, is a great way of understanding how, you know, physicality through whether it's warfare or, you know, social interactions and sports over the time, you know, has actually been so important to, to, to history and, and civilizations. Um, and I think, like, certainly for me with the, with the acting world as well, this is all the sorts of things that make it worth finding out, right? It makes it worth living for, um, and it keeps our interest in it.
0: No, I think I think that's a wonderful point there. I think that's a wonderful point. But obviously, our listeners are going to want to go away, find you, and interact with you online, Aaron. Where can they find
1: you? All right, uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Aaron Daniel Sharma. Um, my short film, uh, which will be coming out probably in the next couple of months, we've got a lot of post-production to do, um that is a historical narrative uh set in the early middle ages uh following one man's pilgrimage uh to a certain church in the countryside um and yeah that'll be up and running uh i think i'll I'll keep you posted about that when it when it comes out um but yeah i've got my 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 website my actor's website is being uh currently under construction when it's being developed again, kind of um needed to sort of change a few things up. But that's www.aarondaniel.com um yeah so you can find me.
0: Awesome. Find yeah i'll make sure those are in the description for our listeners to go and interact with yeah. and find you so thank you very much for coming on aaron appreciate thanks it thanks a lot
1: thanks a lot it's been great to chat
0: now i really hope that you enjoyed this episode with aaron all about his paper redefining analytic human horse interactions in central eurasia there was an awful lot going on in that conversation And I learned so much about the different methods of taming domesticating horses and learned even more about the importance of archaeology, but also of science within our study of history. Now, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other ones that we have produced, please do consider supporting us through the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below or History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we have another awesome episode lined up, and I know you're going to enjoy that one. So I'll see you all next week.